The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. There are a lot of challenges in our lives that can help us achieve more, and mental health challenges or neurodivergent tendencies can be our superpowers. And then there's the reality that there are going to be times that are traumatic, tragic, sad. We face depression, death, and grief because we are human. Today, we have two guests who face those things boldly. At the end of the show, we'll hear from a listener who reached out to me to talk about the pain she was experiencing as a full-time, unexpected caretaker for her partner as he fought cancer, and what that meant for her career, her work, and her ambition. But first, We have the wonderful Susan David, whose incredible TED Talk on emotional courage has been viewed over 10 million times. Susan's best-selling book, Emotional Agility, is a classic. She's a Harvard Medical School psychologist. We start the conversation talking about grief and just how angry the tyranny of positivity can make us. There is a narrative that talks to this about cancer, and I experienced this profoundly in my own life with with my own parent who was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I was 15. And I recall going into his room one day after he had had guests who had basically come to say goodbye to him. And my dad was sobbing. And I remember saying to him, like, Daddy, Daddy, you know, what, what's going on? What happened? And he said to me, they told me that the reason I am dying is because I do not have enough faith. Mm. And he had in his mind and through the messaging that he had received conflated this idea that somehow if you don't think positively mm. – And if you aren't positive and if you experience difficult emotions, that it is firstly a demonstration of a lack of faith. And secondly, you know, what are we really messaging to people? We're really messaging that if they experience normal human emotions and if something goes wrong in their lives, that they are accountable and responsible for their own deaths because they somehow weren't positive enough. The view that emotions are good or bad, positive or negative, is pervasive in our culture, bound into management theory, the idea that effective leadership is about being inspirational and being positive, leads people into an experience that I can only describe as unseeing. Hmm. An unseeing of ourselves and an unseeing of others. In the most extreme version of it, we have my dad. In the less extreme version of it, we have 
someone who is going through change in their organization and who's worried about the change, concerned, and the leader says something like, well, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. You know, you're either with us, you're against us. And what this does is it segments out the normal human experience in the service of forced false positivity. And the costs of this are to ourselves. This is associated, this orientation is associated with high levels of burnout, lower levels of mental health and well-being. It is also associated with a lower capacity for the organization to do what it's trying to do because collaboration holds hands with potential conflict. Innovation holds hands with potential failure. These difficult emotions come with experience. And where we also land up being in a world where we turn our back on others and other people's pain and in truth, even the world. What are we so scared of when avoiding negativity becomes a cultural obsession? What are we so scared of? The first is that these emotions are difficult. It is truly difficult to experience grief Mm. and sadness and anxiety and anger. It's tough to experience all of these emotions. And yet these emotions are bound up with the fragility of life. Life's beauty and life's fragility are interwoven. We all have so recently had that experience of, you know, you think you're in control and then COVID comes and laughs in your face and says, ha you know, this illusion that you thought you had is, is an illusion. But I think there's something beyond that. I think that uh, there are historical views around emotions that lead to emotions, especially these difficult emotions being sidelined. Mm. If you think about a child who is struggling with algebra, that child will be able to go online and find any number of resources to help them with their algebra issue. They'll be able to watch Zoom classes and Can Academy and do whatever it is they need in order to navigate that. And yet the same child who is feeling bullied, who's struggling with anxiety, who's feeling unseen in their classroom, there are pretty much no resources available at scale for that child. And that really speaks to a culture that has sidelined emotions, that sees emotions even in our organizations as being soft skills. And when we think about these soft skills, you know, it's often described in a way that is derogatory, that, oh, you know, we've got to worry about the strategy and the logic. Oh, and then we we need to kind of care about the soft skills. But really what we have is a context in which the normal human parts of ourselves are now either seen as good or bad, positive or negative. And it's rigid and it doesn't support our well-being or the capacity of our organizations. No, it's rigid. And it's also often gendered. You know, I, I think I feel very bad for men often because I think that a lot of these, quote, soft skills and emotion stuff are seen as the purview of women. And when I talk to men who are anxious by nature, they've been told their whole lives, well, why can't you just stop worrying? Which they, yeah. they hear as be a man. Well, when we look historically at the 
view of emotions. What you describe is the truth of how emotions have been seen in history. So if we think back, for example, to the Victorian times, what could easily be taught was maths and sciences. Mm. And education at the time was open to males. And what became seen as the other, the knitting, the sewing, the handicraft, and yes, <laughs> emotions, became associated with femininity. Historically, you have a gendering that has happened around emotions. And this comes at real cost. Firstly, the example that I gave earlier, which is that emotions then are not seen as legitimate aspects of society that should be taught in schools and supported. And the second is we then land up having what in psychological terms we call display rules. And display rules are the very often unspoken and sometimes spoken rules that we have in society about emotions. So emotions being good or bad, positive or negative is a display rule. Appropriate or not, I would assume. Appropriate or not. The idea that boys don't cry is a display rule. Mm. And when you grow up in an environment in which you are messaged about these normal human experiences, then when you feel these normal human experiences, which you will, you now haven't been supported in developing the skill set of emotional agility that helps you to move through those experiences. And so you have this idea then, which is organizations are the place for, and I'm being extreme here, but for logic, for strategy, for for data, mm -hmm. for numbers. And then the other stuff that finds its way into the organization is considered to be soft. And anyone who has spent a moment in any professional life knows what complete nonsense that is. That any time an organization doesn't do well, that is struggling, it's always because of the emotional, human, messy stuff inside of us. Yes. And anyone who's had a boss who can explode into anger, right, or be very inconsistent in their emotions can understand that if things were just more easily expressed, things might also feel a lot clearer, right? Yes. If things were human and, you know, it's it's remarkable that these kinds of emotional skills that we're talking about, these emotional agility skills are, they are the cornerstone to mental health, well-being, resilience, organizational effectiveness, culture, every aspect of how we love, how we live, how we parent, and how we lead. I'd love to hear you define emotional agility and then give an example of how a leader or a manager can be emotionally agile in a way that people could relate to. So I will give a short definition mm -hmm. of emotional agility and then I'll give a longer definition. The short definition is really that emotional agility is the skills that help us to be healthy human beings. Wow. You know, the internal psychological skill set that helps us to be a healthy human being. The longer definition is that every day we have multiple thoughts. Mm. Thoughts might be, I'm not good enough. There's no point in trying. You know, what's the use? <laughs> we have emotions. We have emotional experiences like boredom, loneliness, grief, sadness, the 
anger, the full range of emotions that we experience daily. Mm-hmm. And then we have stories. Some of our stories were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old, stories about what kind of life we deserve, whether we're good enough, whether we're worthy. And we have these human experiences and they are normal human experiences. There is nothing inherently good or bad about any thought, emotion, or story. Hold on. There's nothing bad about stories we tell ourselves that keep us stuck? (laughs) There is nothing bad about stories. Mm. Stories help us to make sense of the world. Stories give us meaning. Emotions help us to adapt and understand our environment. Thoughts, whether those thoughts are about, I'm not sure if I'm ready for my presentation or I'm not sure if I'm cut out for this. These are normal thoughts and emotions and stories. These are literally evolutionary survival mechanisms that if we didn't have, we would not be alive. When I am in an environment, I constantly need to be able to sense make, oh, the noise that I'm hearing is my child crying and it's not the washing machine. (laughs) You know, that is a story. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing inherently good or bad, positive or negative about any thought, emotion or story. This is literally our brains doing its job, which is trying to protect us. So what is emotional agility and what is the opposite emotional rigidity? Emotional agility is the ability to be with our difficult thoughts, emotions, and stories in ways that are healthy, in ways that are curious. Hmm, what is that thought telling me about what's important here? In ways that are compassionate. Gee, I feel anxious today and it kind of sucks. In ways that are courageous, gee, I need to have a difficult conversation and I feel worried about that conversation, but I know that it's the right thing for me to do. So we can be with our difficult thoughts, emotions, and stories in ways that are curious, in ways that are compassionate, in ways that are courageous, and that bring us towards our values. That is emotional agility. Mm -hmm. Emotional rigidity is when we have a normal thought, emotion, or story, and it, to use your phrase, keeps us stuck. Mm. So in psychology, we call this fusion. It's this idea that I had the thought, and I believe that thought is 100% true and defining of me. I feel unworthy. My story is a story that I'm unworthy. Yeah. Therefore, I'm not going to put up my hand up for that promotion or therefore I'm not going to apply for that job. What you've got here is now you've got no space between the story and your action. You know, to use that beautiful, profound Viktor Frankl idea that is, I think, one of the most gorgeous sentiments in human history. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And in that choice lies our growth and our freedom. You know, I was giving a talk yesterday and someone messaged me after the talk and said, 
I'm really anxious. And I think that my anxiety makes me not take risks and makes me scared to say things in meetings and get noticed. I really want a promotion. I really, I want to be promoted, but I, I just can't seem to speak up and stand out because I'm so scared of taking risks. That's a beautiful example. Yeah. So when the person is feeling anxious, anxiety is a normal human emotion. It's a normal human experience. And then when there's no space between stimulus and response, when there's that fusion, mm -hmm. then the person is anxious, therefore I'm not going to speak. No. Anxious, therefore I'm not going to put my hand up. So what is happening over time then is the person is moving away from their values because the values are values of growth. The values are values of connectedness. Do you encourage people to really get in touch with their values and what they stand for and believe in even before they enter a situation that might make them get stuck? Knowing who you are and what you stand for from a values-based perspective, is one of the most profound ways that we can center ourselves in the world. Mm. Our difficult emotions really are data. Our emotions signpost the things that we care about. So one of the ways we can actually start surfacing our values is by showing up to our difficult emotions with gentle acceptance. And I'll give you some examples. Boredom. You know, you might say, well, like, okay, we can be bored and busy, 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 but bored. Yeah. Okay. Because it's the same thing every day. Boredom is often signposting that you value growth and learning and that you don't have enough of it in your life. Grief, you know, grief is love. Grief is love looking for its home. Grief is signposting that you've had a relationship with a person that maybe is not in your life any longer, but is hugging you to remember the connection with that person, mm. to make space for them in your world. Loneliness. We can be, you know, on Zoom call after Zoom call, we can be lonely in a household full of people. Mm -hmm. Loneliness is signposting needs for intimacy and connection. So a core part of my work is this idea that, yes, connecting with our values is crucial. And there's a huge amount of research in different areas showing that connecting with your values protects you from greater levels of burnout. It's crucial to mental health and well-being. It's just a foundational aspect of the way we move through a world in which we are constantly being told what to believe, who you should be, why you aren't good enough. <laughs> you know, it, it was remarkable to me, Maura, that even during this pandemic that we've just been through, that you went on social media and you could not escape during that, you know, darkest period of quarantine. There would be multiple posts by people saying things like, well, you know, if you didn't use your time in quarantine to 
you know, perfect sourdough bread baking. Those were horrifying. Or, horrifying. You know, or just of your screenplay, then it's it's not that you didn't have the time. It's that you lack the discipline. And don't get me wrong, you know, if you use time in quarantine to perfect your knowledge of 20th century Scandinavian cinema, all power to you. But we seem to live in a world that constantly invites us to unsee ourselves. I'll never forget, you know, it's in all the leadership literature. I was reading a book by Robert Glazer, who's a friend who I think is really smart. And it was all about success. And he said, I have never met a leader or someone who's really successful who lets themselves think negative thoughts. Now, if you're like me and you're kind of anxious and a lot of your day is spent battling I can't and dark thoughts, which I'm not defending as a way of life, but for a lot of us, we do. You are constantly going against a model that says, well, you can't be a leader because I've never met a leader who thinks negative thoughts. So I want to say that that is outrageous. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Bob. It's incorrect. It's incorrect. Uh, We human beings experience around 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day. Wow. And thousands more course through our minds. Am I good enough? Should I speak up? Shouldn't I speak? Like we just have hundreds of them. Again, there is nothing inherently good or bad, positive or negative. And I know that is such a countercultural thing to say. But number one, we, we know that these thoughts, emotions, stories help to position ourselves and understand ourselves and protect ourselves in the world. Secondly, as soon as we start having all of these messages that tell us what we can and cannot think, there are a number of things that happen. We know that when we experience difficult thoughts and we try to push them aside, I can't think that. I'm not allowed to feel that. There is a very well-worn and very well-known psychological mechanism that is called amplification. Mm. And amplification is the idea that when you try not to think of that delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator, what do you think about? You think about the cake. So I might think that I have this, you know, I'm upset with my brother and I don't want to say anything. So I'm just going to push it aside, push it aside, push it aside. And then what I do, I go for family reunion and I find myself blurting out something to my brother. (laughs) So this is called emotional leakage. And Mm -hmm. emotional leakage happens when we have thoughts, emotions, stories that we push aside, that we suppress, and they then come out. And so what we then land up doing, which I think just layers on when you were talking about anxiety, if you live in a world that says you're not allowed to think something or you're not allowed to feel sad and then you feel sad because you are human, then what happens? You land up hustling with yourself. So you land up saying things like, oh, I'm I'm sad, but I shouldn't be sad. And this is what we call type two emotions. Type one emotions are the normal human emotions, sadness, loneliness, anxiety. These are normal human emotions. And these are type one, what we might call clean emotions. Type two emotions are emotions about emotions. I'm sad that I'm sad. I'm angry that I'm angry. I shouldn't feel it. And what we start doing is we now turn our hearts into a war zone where we will not give ourselves a break because now we are not just feeling the feeling. We are now at 
fighting with ourselves about whether we're allowed to feel that feeling or not. And the more we do that, the deeper we sink. Mm. It's like quicksand. I just want to read the exact quote because I, I don't want to take, you know, cast dispersion on Bob, but it is, I have yet to meet a high achiever or world-class performer who has a negative attitude or believes the worst is going to happen. And, you know, when I talk to people who, who are, you know, managing anxiety disorders specifically and trying to have big careers, they have so much anxiety about their anxiety. Will it lead me the wrong way? Will it prevent me from getting what I want, right? Because I'm not supposed to feel this. And all of a sudden, when you are least expecting it, all of a sudden the anxiety hits you. I shouldn't have said that in the meeting. They're going to think I'm an idiot right? Or I sent that chart out. It had a million mistakes. I'm never going to get promoted. And so you just live in fear, like you said, of your fear and of your anxiety. The anxiety that someone feels in a meeting, that anxiety may be pointing to, again, a value that the person has. The value is the value of contribution. The value is the value of growth. And so one of the most important ways that we can then start navigating our difficult emotions is by keeping grounded in that value. You know, we can hold both. We can hold both. We are beautiful and capacious and messy and human, and we can hold both. We don't need to get rid of, nor can we get rid of anxiety. But we can go into a meeting in which we simultaneously hold our anxiety in one hand and hold our courage and our values in the other, and where we focus on the contribution that I'm trying to make, and we move forward into the discomfort of that contribution, because that's now not being held hostage by the difficult emotion, but rather moving forward into your values. Your emotions are data. Your emotions signpost the things that you care about, but they're not directives. Just because I feel anxious doesn't need, mean that I need to let that anxiety hold me hostage. And I do think that, you know, the quote that you spoke about is really this idea that you're not, and, and I think there's, there's some, truth in some way to that, because I think really what he's talking about with that attitude, you know, what he's talking about is, you know, are you being held hostage? Mm. Are you being held hostage by the story? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
Uncertainty is so hard for most of us, right? I think a mm-hmm. lot of the reasons we work so hard to avoid sad or scary or negative thoughts is because the thought of facing uncertainty is just very hard. And, you know, a lot of people on the show work very hard to keep a, a veneer of control <laughs> so that the worst won't happen, you know, defensive pessimism, or if I only spend 20 hours on that presentation, the economy won't crash. <laughs> yeah. What's your advice if we're someone who is literally wearing ourselves out trying to keep uncertainty at bay? How do we begin? Heraclitus, the philosopher, once described that as a human being, you can never step into the same river twice. And I love it because it really speaks to the idea that uncertainty is foundational to the contract that we have with life. Mm. You know, the only certainty is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And the world is changing around us and we as human beings are changing and evolving. And so uncertainty and discomfort are bound into what it means to be alive. Mm. I said this in my TED talk and I'm being facetious with it. Um, but, you know, sometimes people say things like, I don't want to experience stress. I don't want to experience discomfort. I don't want my heart to be broken. I don't want to not get the promotion. I d- you, you know, I just, I just want the stress to go away. And I'm like, I get it at such a deep level. I get it. But these are dead people's goals. <laughs> I know. You know, these are dead people's goals. Only dead people never don't get the promotion. Only dead people never have their hearts broken. But Susan, I heard that and I thought, oh my God, that's me. I spend my entire life just praying that bad things won't happen and working so hard to try to make sure they don't. I so get it. But, you know, the truth is we don't get to have a meaningful career or raise a family or leave the world a better place without uncertainty, without stress and discomfort. Discomfort is the price of admission Mm. to a meaningful life. And so you, you said, you know, what can we do then if we know this to be true cognitively or logically, and yet our hearts are doing backflips and saying, go away, go away, go away. You know, I think there's, there's something very important about gentle acceptance. And we've already spoken to this at some level, this idea that when we keep on fighting what is, then we're hustling with ourselves. And so we create this battlefield inside our hearts. And I think there's just something so important in recognizing that it's just hard to human. (laughs) It is hard to human. It just is. Mm -hmm. And I remember, Maura, when I was around five years old, I was petrified of a particular kind of uncertainty. And that is that at the age of around five or six years old, children become aware of their own mortality. It's very normal. I promised you we just wouldn't do light, light, light in this no conversation. Light, no light, no. I'm like living up to it. Um, so I was around five and I became terrified that my parents were going to die. 
And this was about 10 years before my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I would night after night go into their bed. And one of the reasons I would go into their bed at night is because I was convinced in my mind that one of them would die during the night. And so out of the sense of desperation, I would find myself between my mom and my dad and I would cry literally in terror and say to my dad, Daddy, promise me you'll never die. Daddy, promise me. Daddy, promise me you'll never die. And my father was so extraordinary. He could have buffered me by doing forced, false, toxic positivity. He could have said things like, oh, don't worry. You've got nothing to worry about. I'll be around. I'm fine. I'm completely healthy. He was healthy at the time, but he didn't. He said to me, Susie, we all die. It's normal to be scared. And so what does that mean in the context of your question, which is how do we navigate this reality? I think there is something that my dad did with the way he held me with both firmness and gentleness and acceptance of the truth. And so a really important way that I think we we move through life is not by trying to control, 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 but rather more and more increasing the muscle that we have by being gently accepting, gentle acceptance of this is what it is. This is what it is. And I don't mean saying to yourself, this is what it is in passive resignation, or this is what it is in there's no point in trying. But this is what it is in that it is hard to human. It is hard to human. And when it's hard to human, what do we need to do? We need to be kind to ourselves. We need to be curious with ourselves. And we need courage. When it comes to difficult emotions, grief is, it's up there. But I also love the way Susan David described it. Grief is love looking for its home. I'm sure many listeners out there are dealing with grief now or have in the recent past. And we know just how hard it is to hold on to the before times, the old ways of doing things, or continue like things haven't changed. So next, a short conversation with listener Jesse Litton. My late husband and I were living abroad uh, in Korea, and he was unexpectedly out of nowhere diagnosed with stage four esophageal cancer. At the time of his diagnosis, Jesse was a school administrator of an international school. The organization was supportive, and Jesse planned to go back to work. But her husband's health deteriorated quickly. She reached out to me to describe the challenges she faced as a caretaker trying to navigate a career transition and how she's faced her grief since. Here's our conversation. The deck of cards was just, it wasn't good. It kept getting, the diagnosis was was further along than originally thought. Uh, so time was limited and being pulled away from, from everything that, that I knew that life was. 
within a few days after diagnosis, we were out of there and he was from Chicago originally. So I brought him back here to be near family and, and some of his close friends and find treatment. That said, it was kind of a, a moment of abandonment, abandoning career, job, home, belongings, friends, community all at once. And then, you know, just really, really taking on the role of becoming a full-time caretaker and advocate during during the time of the illness and then reflecting back on, oh, wait, there needs to be time to process this. And really reaching out was about this idea of professional self and identity dissolution of professional self in the face of vulnerability when thrust into an unexpected situation and kind of just the story unfolding of navigating those waters and what that was, what it became to be and what it is now. As you say this, I was reflecting that (laughs) there are caregiving roles we choose and we prepare for them and we get a lot of societal input for them, like when we get pregnant, right? Correct. And we think, okay, I'm going to be a working parent. I'm going to be a working mother now. So I'm going to rejigger my professional self-image and my career. But when you become a caregiver like you did, like you didn't sign up for that. And it wasn't a happy thing, obviously. It wasn't something I would imagine that you had ever prepared for. Correct. Yeah, there was no, like you said, no no preparation when in life, usually you're given those chances to prepare and have some idea of that and some sense of semblance of control over that. So this was one of those moments where control was just burst open and taken away and figuring out how to regain that sense of control and structure in that way, in the context of that kind of situation. Ultimately, you feel powerless and and like a almost like a failure because there there's no control over something that's beyond your control, beyond doctor's control in a way too. And when you're stripped of all the parts of life that you're used to controlling, like that was the first time losing a job without me deciding to step away from it, you know, in, in that, in that kind of way. So where do you find control and things like, like logistics and managing of this business, uh, like time management, scheduling and communications? Those became the types of responsibilities. You know, and then retackling this image of of self in the professional space. So you left your job in Korea and moved back to Chicago. Were you worried at that point about not having a job or were you just so taken up with caregiving and, and worrying for your husband like it didn't really matter? It was part of it. It went to the back burner in a, yeah. in a way, too. You know, I was taking on that that role. It's like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I mean, really intellectually knowing that this was a limited time, right? That there was, there was a lot of anticipation. Uh, so this idea of anticipation, anticipatory grief, anticipating an inevitable outcome, and then trying to prepare what happens after that. Around March of 2021, my brain was able to open up the space again to Say, hey, I need to, I need to start preparing for, for myself and what 
life is going to reshape and, and look like beyond. So that's when I started looking for for work again. And there's a place, a company that's been very, very understanding and kind on a contract basis. They really have had a lot of compassion during during the situation and flexibility in working with me, which was really a light to have. Yeah. And your husband passed. When when did he pass away? He did. Uh, he passed in August. So towards Towards the end of August, yeah, August 23rd, it was quick. Mm. Treatment had stopped working. So we we knew that, uh, you know, it was going to happen at some point. Hospitalization happened and and within a week uh, he, he passed. So it was, it was around an 11-month struggle. Mm. Yeah. Where would you say you are right now in your grief journey. Yeah, it's uh it's been interesting and and surprising. Grief is it can be a beast that overtakes you and just kind of in one way having preparation for that and trying to understand this idea of grief and and what it is and how it's portrayed in, in society and that it's not what it is. It's different for and unique for everyone. So kind of taking this idea of grief and it could be this tumbleweed that can ever expand and kind of be caught in, in a tsunami and, and just taking it and reshaping it and processing it and having a lot of mental strength and acuity to face it head on mm. because Ultimately, there's no other way. Otherwise, it can overtake. And I quickly realized that grief can bring you to a dark side and you can stay there and become bitter and angry. You know, and if, if you don't pick yourself back up and accept help and love and what's out there from other people, then I don't know if I'd be in the place that I am now, which is feeling okay. And it was quicker than. I definitely anticipated and thought it would be. Yeah. It would, and, and understanding too that grief can be a part of you, but it it doesn't have to own you and take over. So you're looking for full-time work. I'm curious. I mean, I hate to focus on work here in the midst of so many much more important stuff, but these are the things that I feel like we never talk about, right? Like, yeah. when did you start thinking again, oh gosh, you know, I need to think about that professional self and I I want to find full-time work. I mean, when did all that kick in and how is it how is it feeling right now? Yeah, absolutely. No, great great question. I'd love to talk about that. You know, from even from the beginning, it it felt like it was so many layers of loss mm-hmm. on top of each other and part of me felt guilty about this professional self, that part of my identity, right? And felt like I had to let go of that for a period of time because the focus was so much on other pieces of the scenario. So around around March of 2021, started re-engaging with the job search and what does that look like and really reshaping what it was that I was looking for and what I wanted and moving out of the space of an educational institution and what does mm-hmm. that transition look like as well. But then coupled with that, encountering this idea of what 
in the context of what I was navigating at the time, where mm-hmm. it meant I couldn't leave because of being a caretaker. Right. right. So I couldn't be somewhere full-time days. So it meant limiting the search to remote possibilities, maybe light hybrid. Those were tricky conversations to navigate. And You know, how much do you bring up with hiring managers, with recruiters? How much do you not say? So it it really begged the question of what does this look like and what are solutions for that, for company culture, for hiring managers, for for those kinds of conversations to happen? What did you say? I mean, did you bring it up? It did. You know, it's really, it changed over time. One anecdotal piece here, there was one interview I had and the interviewer the job description was, it was remote and it was going well, the interview. And then it was brought up, oh, we changed our mind. It's actually in person. And my jaw dropped because I said, I, I can't. <laughs> and then I didn't, I felt lock-lipped. I, I didn't want to say why mm. because I felt so vulnerable. Like that would ruin everything. And I think the interviewer stepped away thinking that I just wanted to be remote and that was it. And there wasn't a particular reason. So that was one experience. And I'm thankful for that experience because it helped me navigate these conversations and figure it out. At one point, I even went to a meetup group just to have small talk, (laughs) to re-engage with small talk and bring up these different points. Okay, let me try and say this is why I'm in Chicago. Oh, let me see where this conversation goes. How do people ask questions? What are they going to ask me? <laughs> and then wow. it helped me prepare more for, for these. Um, I've encountered some exploratory conversations, which help bring up talking about it in mm-hmm. more of a natural standpoint and finding connections with people, you know, and there's, there's empathy and compassion that's brought up. Sometimes it doesn't have to be. It's just kind of circumstantial in that way. And it's it's made me really think about what places can do as well. To your point, something you said about, uh, you know, when you make the choice when maybe you are going on maternity leave, right? And you're already anchored in a job. There's language for that. But what does it look like when it, there's not that language? What should employers know? What should they know? Yeah, sometimes, so looking through copious amounts of job descriptions, typically there's a section, you know, below the actual description, what different qualifiers are for employee benefits and offers, right? Sometimes these pieces to lure you in. Sometimes it's highlighted very specifically that it's, there's child care and elder care offerings. Right. And when, when there's a job, there's FMLA. So that's, that's understood as well. But maybe a generalization for terms to also include caretaker in there. Mm -hmm. And then that expands that conversation to inclusivity as well and company culture, understanding that there's different kinds of situations that everyone has. You know, researching government assistant programs, there's a lot that's Medicaid-based, there's a lot out there for vets, or again, very specific language to elder care Mm. as the umbrella term for caretaker, you know, and then suggestions for FMLA, which is also understood if you're anchored in a job already. 
needs. So how does that expansion happen to different caretaker situations? Because everyone's situation is, is unique. Something else I thought about, open up the space for storytelling during interviews so potential candidates can bring their authentic selves into light. So the idea of blending this personal and professional self, and this is life. Mm-hmm. You know, and something, right? And definitely, you know, during the past two years too, I think there's been a lot of exposure for people as well in this kind of vulnerable space and the employee-employer kind of understanding and melding these worlds as well. So how do employers continue that? You know, changing interview styles as well to transition more to conversational spaces as opposed to dead stop Q&A mm. can also be something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess one question that just popped up also is, do you feel like you want to put on your resume during this period that you were a caretaker? Like, y- you yeah. left your job, you didn't get laid mm-hmm. off, like you're consulting mm-hmm. because that was the best option. I'm just curious if if you feel like you need to explain this period or if it's just what it is and let people make of it what they will. Yeah, no, I do. I do feel like that because it is a job and, and there's a gap in my resume, you know, which is who knows what people look at that as, you know, there's something and I don't mind answering a question if it comes up or why it was a job. And there were so many skills that go, go into that job, you know, understanding hospital infrastructure and, and uh, insurance and oh my God. and dealing with all that too, being an advocate, you know, and then, then it brings to mind who out there doesn't have an advocate. What if English is your second language? How do you navigate these systems? It's difficult. You know, there's, there's a lot. There's and, a lot. I don't know if you considered yourself an anxious person before all this happened, but has anxiety come into your life differently or has it lessened? Like what's happened there? Yeah, no, these are, these are such great on point questions that really, um, just, just all the things <laughs> thinking about, uh, all the things. I, uh, I lived with a lot of anxiety before, just different background things, uh, yeah, childhood trauma. You know, I think everyone can link yeah. some things there, you know, that brings a lot of, a lot of resilience and survivalist skills. You know, all of that uh, and, and trying to be someone different in a professional space versus, oh, wow, there's a lot of anxiety in, in personal life. And then when the situation happened that happened, just brimming with anxiety. Yeah. You know, with this, this anticipation piece, it was, it was constant and, and just trying to be someone that was a hero and strong for someone that was sick and for other people too. Like, mm. oh, I'm, I'm the face of this situation, you know, and then when it ended with the end of pain and suffering comes relief and trying to understand that it's relief and it's not something to feel guilty about, Mm. you know, and, and the anxiety is still there, but it's different. How? Anxiety for what's to come and what's, going to happen with all these these still in motion parts and pieces but it feels controllable in a different way possibly because 
there was a situation that happened that was so out of control. Right. How could how could I not have control now in a very different way? Or maybe you don't need as much control. You don't need uh, that true. sense of control, maybe. Right. Oh. Yeah, there's there's things we don't talk about in society that happens in the hospital, you know, that happens during that kind of illness. We don't we don't see it, we're not exposed to it. So when you are, there's mm-hmm. it's a lot to process and take in. The anxiety is just so high. Yeah. That coming down from that is yeah, like that that word relief and not trying to feel guilty about that. I just wanted to finish by asking if there's anything you'd like to say, if there's a listener out there who's going through involuntary caregiving. Time. And I know for any listener that you're hearing the same things, time, oh, day by day, little steps, baby steps, all those things. And it's so hard when your anxious brain Right. During the day, you can manage your day to day, but at night, that's when it all seeps in, you know, but you will get through it and it's a process and taken. I think one thing that was a learning curve was not feeling like a burden to others Mm. because people want to help and make sure you tap into your network's to your community, to the love, and accept it. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.